This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today I have an author on, the author of Mystics and Misfits, Meeting God Through St. Francis and Other Unlikely Saints, Christiana Peterson. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So I read your book, and it's so beautifully written and so beautifully put together how you move back and forth between telling your story and then also telling stories about some saints, some specific saints that we'll um, talk a little bit about, I hope, and then also your conversations or letters to them, kind of reaching out to them and, um, in, your own, in your own journey and, and kind of asking them for help sometimes or just in some kind of dialogue with them. And um, But before we get started too much into the book, I was hoping you could share a little bit about yourself with some of the listeners who might not know who you are, and then what the background was uh, uh, before you got into an intentional community. And I guess, what is an intentional community? Maybe we should cover that too, because, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, can you keep four things in your head all at one time? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit about you and, and kind of to set up what the book is about. Okay, sure. Um, so I live in Ohio now with my four kids and my husband, who is now a pastor of Mennonite Church here in a small town. Um, but we moved here in August from the intentional community that I talk about in the book. Um, it's called Plow Creek. And we lived there for eight years. Um, it was a Mennonite intentional community, and it was on a farm. And my husband was the farm manager for those eight years. When we say intentional community, what does that mean? Like, Can you describe that in someone who has no idea what that is? Well, I think intentional community kind of is an umbrella term, and that can be anywhere from a commune to an echo village to the kind of community that I lived in, which was part commune and part um, just a church community. Um, it started more like a commune where the people people moved there from another community in Chicago, and they came there um, and bought the land and shared finances, which is kind of the communal commune aspect of it. And then eventually, there, it was a 180-acre property, and they built their own houses. Um, they eventually started a farm. And so um, I guess the word intentional is a clue that they really were focused on caring for each other. Um, and that was part of you know doing all their finances together, doing a lot of their food together, they canned things every year for the whole community. They had a community cow <laughs> that they shared milk. Um, and this was before I got there. So a lot of intentional communities do things differently, but I think what they all have in common is um, this focus on living together and caring for each other. Um, and in some, in some ways, um, consensus decision-making, which was a, a big part of our process of making decisions mm. you know everybody everybody has a voice and they tried very hard to um not marginalize any voices and um, not have a lot of authority over each other mm. which which can be good and bad um i think the intent was really really great to listen to every voice that every every voice has has something to offer so um so yeah, our, our, our particular community was on a property, but I don't think every intentional community is like that. There are some intentional communities that like 
and live in a big city and they, they maybe live on the same street in different houses, but, but they have some sort of meeting place and they have some life in common. So it's a little more intense than like in a Christian setting, it's a little more intense than a traditional church. Right. There's more uh, common vision and, and cooperation, sometimes shared lawnmowers or shared right. equipment. But uh, the difference between whether the purse is common or, or not common can be a real sticking point. And I know that your community yeah. didn't have a common purse, but that it had started out that way um, decades earlier, right? Right. There was a common purse while we were there, okay. um, but it, it had dwindled to just a few families and um, the people that had moved in the years before that, before we lived there, it had sort of been an, a requirement for them when you moved there that eventually you would become a part of the common purse. That was what people did. But when we moved there, that had, the community had kind of um, come away from that. So we weren't, we weren't required to be a part of the common purse. And mm-hmm. a lot of the, a lot of the members there were not actually not a part of the common purse. Mm-hmm. So it, it had lessened. Yeah. But your background was not a farming background. That's, that's a great part of the book. Um, kind of discovering simplicity and maybe you can go into just a little bit of, of the kind of uh, shift in lifestyle that, that you had moving into this intentional community. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, it was a big, a big difference. I grew up in a really wealthy home in Austin, Texas. So big city, um, had no farming background. In fact, I didn't like to be outside much because it was so hot. <laughs> and I just assumed that, <laughs> that I didn't like the outdoors, but it was really because it was so hot. Um, and my husband, when we, when we got married, he was living in Washington, D.C. So I moved there um, to when we got married to live there with him. Um, and yeah, we were living in sort of near downtown DC. Um, he had a farming community plot. He had spent two years, um, in West Africa and we both sort of had heard about intentional community, but had no, Mm -hmm. had absolutely no, um, um, exposure to it. In his time in West Africa, he had worked with a farmer, a local farmer, and that was his only experience with farming besides having a community garden. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I had, wow. I mean, I, growing up in Texas, I thought I wanted to have a horse ranch, but <laughs> we were big city people. We didn't go camping. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up camping. I didn't grow up doing much outside at all. So this was totally, totally yeah. new for us. Um, yeah. You didn't did your family think you were crazy? Um, a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They were, I mean, we're both middle children. Mm -hmm. So they were used to us both in our families doing kind of the, um, the the unexpected thing Mm. and perhaps more adventurous thing. So Mm -hmm. I think they, they were a little bit weirded out by the whole (laughs) commune intentional community thing. You know, (laughs) they didn't really know like you know, if it was, it was a cult, I think they trusted us enough to know we weren't joining a cult or anything like that, but, (laughs) but it was a little bit strange for them to come visit us, which they did. Yeah. Well, it, it does sound like there's some kind of romanticism and some kind of charm about it. And it's a simpler, you know, it's a simpler way, but it's a, sounds very, very, very trying at at many points. And one of the, um, 
quotes is within the book, true simplicity confounds the wisdom of the age and the flesh. And, you know, that that's really a poignant quote. And I think that's kind of what you like it or not, you had to be in a simple lifestyle. And, and what are the some of the things that uh, I taught you? I mean, sometimes those lessons, I'm sure were totally the hard way. But, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they were in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think there was so much idealism, so much romanticism. I think a lot of after being there for several years, we, you know, we would have interns that would come and they, as soon as they said something like, oh, I've been reading Wendell Berry, mm. then you knew that they were coming <laughs> with so many expectations, so mm. many ideals, so many romantic, you know, notions of just gardening and writing poetry. And, you know, mm-hmm. that was what, that was a lot of ways what we had come with. So we understood that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, really engaging with St. Francis mm. helped me sort to start to understand that all of that, you know, the simple life as a lot of people call it was sort of a, a movement and kind of a, a trendy movement. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But when we're speaking of simplicity in a Christian sense, it's, it's about your heart and it's about stripping down all of the stuff that, that, you know, for, for me, particularly who grew up in a wealthy home, you know, there's a lot that wealth protects us from. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of comforts that, um, that, that we have that we don't even realize we have, you know, it's like with most kinds of privilege, it takes peeling back the layers to see all, all of your privilege. Mm. Um, so I think it took a lot of that stripping back and being in community with lots of people who had come from, you know, not not backgrounds like ours, um, and and really hearing their hurts and suffering with them, that you start to, to to peel some of that away. And so, as you're journeying in this this period of your life, you're also encountering the mystics, and they're sort of speaking into your life. And mm-hmm. um, those two things dovetail to kind of carry you through in many ways. And maybe you can start talking a little bit about um, how that began or how St. Francis spoke into your life in, in a, a specifically powerful time? Yeah, I, I think it was a time in my life where I was having some mental health issues. I was struggling with anxiety and postpartum depression. And I was starting to enter into this, these couple of years where there were some family members that were ill and some of them who died. And all of that along the way, um, the community was really, really struggling. So we were under a lot of stress Mm. and I just got to where I, I couldn't, what, what had worked for me before wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And I think about that same time, you know, it's hard to remember the exact moments, but it was sort of, um, St. Francis here and St. Francis there. And I started just seeing St. Francis everywhere. (laughs) Mm. Um, I started reading Richard Rohr and he was talking about St. Francis and the mystics. And then I found that garden statue that I talk about, um, Mm. in my grandmother's house as we're clearing out her house. Um, Mm. she had to move to, uh, assisted living facility and she had this kind of rundown garden statue of St. Francis. And it was just up to that point, I'd kind of heard of him so many times that it was just like, oh, Mm. there's something here. There's something I need to follow with St. Francis. And somewhere in there, I wrote that first letter to St. Francis that's in the book. Mm -hmm. um, It's called The Skirt of God. 
Mm. And I, it, I didn't write it to be in the book. I just wrote it as sort of this, I think I was breastfeeding my, one of my babies and I had this sort of imaginative um, interaction with St. Francis mm-hmm. and it really became a touch point for the whole book. Um, a lot of the themes in that letter, I think I explore a little bit throughout the whole book. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very it's very touching how you open up and are vulnerable, um, and also see your life in some ways sort of paralleling his and his um, poverty of spirit and his renunciation of of his wealth and different things that are they're kind of like you're wondering can I learn something from you? What can you teach me? And I found that to be really powerful. Um, When you talk about, maybe you can explain a little bit about contemplative prayer. You talk a little bit about Thomas Merton and contemplative prayer. One of the things, um, I just wanted to read this a little bit. There's one part that says, that you write, and it says, I realized that contemplative prayer was not about simply finding peace. In fact, it was leading me deeper into the pain of the world. Our prayers led us to love God's creation and creatures more, and ultimately we become what we love. Can there be a mystical life without death? Why is the mystical life bound up with death? I know I still struggle with so many things I tried to learn at Plow Creek. Simplicity, hospitality, solitude, making my family wider, going, uh, doing church in a unique way. We longed for a way of community that collapsed while we were there. Sometimes I wonder what was the point. I know my ideals were, were crushed long ago, and I think generally that's a good thing. You talk about contemplative prayer being a mainstay of spiritual practice throughout your time, and I'm wondering, um, like, how did you first encounter it, and, and if you could explain what it is. I know Merton talks about it as prayer of the heart, but how mm. did you experience it? See, I'm, I'm trying to think where I first, I think probably first started with Richard Rohr's book. I think mm-hmm. he talked a little bit about it and I was like, what is this contemplative prayer? Mm. And then I started reading, reading, reading Thomas Keating's book. Mm-hmm. Um, is it open heart, open minds? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm probably going to get that. Something like that. And he talks like, um, he explains how to do centering prayer. Mm. Um, and that, that was really helpful to me to just say, okay, tell me what to do. Tell what, tell me like literally what I'm supposed to do when I pray, because, you know, you hear the word contemplative prayer and if no one explains it to you, it just seems like a vague sort of mm-hmm. roofy thing. <laughs> but that was sort of my way in, um, centering prayer was, um, but I think contemplative prayer, I, th- I think is also maybe an umbrella term. There's a lot of different ways to do t- com- contemplative prayer. There's breath prayer, um, there's labyrinth prayers. Um, so I think there's a lot of different ways. There's meditating on, you know, Claire of Assisi used to meditate on the cross of Christ, on mm. the suffering of Christ. And so I think there's a lot of different ways to talk about contemplative prayer. But I think a lot of people um, associate it with mindfulness. Mm. And that's, that's sort of a buzzword. Um, and you know, people might push against this, but I see mindfulness as sort of a, um, a, a way toward peace and, you know, it's kind of silence and peace. And sometimes contemplative prayer, at least when I was first doing it, 
didn't always leave me feeling peaceful. Um, it, it sometimes brought up stuff that yeah, I had yeah. with. And, you know, sometimes you have to dig up that stuff in order to get to peace. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it helped me encounter my own um, darkness and my own suffering and my own, you know, I don't say suffering like I've, I've suffered a lot compared to a lot of people, but just my own brokenness, my own weakness, and sort of showed that to me in a way that was um, really powerful and hard, uh, but also you know, healing. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think in contemplative prayer for people who are going to be listening to this and not still maybe not understanding it is typically in least Protestant evangelical circles somewhat think of prayer as I'm going to talk to God and ask God for things or worship mm-hmm. God and kind of in an active sort of mm-hmm. very, well, I guess, you know, active or proactive way even. Yeah. And contemplative prayer is much more listening and mindful and abiding and resting. And yeah. it is that the attitude seems to be a lot different, almost, I don't want to say passive because it's not really passive, but it's, Maybe the listening side, if a conversation has talking and listening, maybe it's on the listening side of communication. Yeah, I think that's that's really right. I think I think we're trained in prayer to ask for things and to see not everybody, but to see God as as uh, this being who gives us things. You know, whether that's healing or um, the, a parking spot or, or whatever, just <laughs> that, that it's a transactional sort of thing. Whereas contemplative prayer asks you to, to um, be in the presence of God without looking for anything from God except to be in the presence of God. Mm. And that that's, that's enough. At least that's how I, I think of it. And when, when I was when centering prayer, when I was um, learning how to do centering prayer, that was sort of the, the um, direction of the prayer <laughs> Not really a direction because it's supposed to be, in a sense, directionless. Um, <laughs> that that you commit to just being in the presence of God and um, hopefully listening, as you said, um, in, in a quiet, open posture toward mm. God. And I like how you say directionless because if we're talking about centering, we're talking about you know God, who is if we're talking about theology or something, we're talking about God who is everywhere present and but we're also talking about God who is within mm-hmm. within the center of us and so you're centering on the very realist thing about you where God is and so I, I love the idea that centering prayer you know is centering on the most real thing about reality about us and yeah. that sometimes we get a little lost even in our attempts to pray or to reach out to God thinking that God is uh, up in the sky or like out there or somehow not listening or not reachable. Mm-hmm. And the thing about contemplative prayer and centering prayer is gets us back to who we are, that we're found in God, and but God is is the center of all things. And I, I love the way that that kind of embraces us truly as, as a child of God. Mm-hmm. I like the way you said that. I, ha- I hadn't really articulated it that way. That was beautiful. But it's centering inside of us where God already is. I mean, I think that was something that I sort of learned through all of this is that God is with us already. It's not, Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's not this bridge to God that we have to cross. God is already there. Um, we just have to, to acknowledge God is there and to look, you know, and to, to hear that God is there with us. One of the things I was hoping to touch on as well, and you talk about some very um, difficult things too of, about suffering and death. And I don't think there's anybody who would, everybody has a couple stories that would completely break your heart as, as you do as well. And um, none of us are really spared loss and suffering yeah. and sickness and all those things. And of course, neither are you. But as you um, engage with them, you are really uh, introspective as you do it, but in a way that. I think engages the reader to to do the same thing, and I I really appreciated that as well as kind of your honesty about your relationship with your father and the things that were that felt missing and the things you wished that that were there. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give away. I want people to to get it, so I'm not going to give away too much of what happens there. But I think that that really is a powerful part of it. It's the ups and downs of everything that happened, but. The one thing I hope we could touch on was the aspect about hospitality that I think is full-bodied that you talk about and how you speak of hospitality and what shifted in you with regards to understanding hospitality. Do you think you could talk a little bit about some of those lessons that you that were instilled as you encountered that? Sure. Well, I, I think I grew up in a, a hospitable home. I mean, my, my parents had lots of people in their home. Um, we had people that visited us from Russia and stayed for weeks and months and we had people live with us. So, um, I grew up with a model of hospitality. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think a lot of us, our instinct when we are hospitable, when we have someone over for a meal is to clean everything up, you know, Mm -hmm. It's sort of literally clean everything up and also, you know, <laughs> all the metaphors that go with that um, to make everything as um, as neat on the outside as we can. And I think when you live in intentional community, you, well, you can't do that for one because people are coming into your house all the time. So they know who you really are. They know how you really live. Mm. They know that your house is a mess because you have two, three, four kids or whatever. (laughs) They know what kind of housekeeper you are. And, you know, it's not that I don't want to clean up my house when somebody comes to visit. I think that can be a sign of respect too. But I think when you really are in deep community with people, um, you're, you're knowing, uh, or you're offering something to them um, more than just the outside material things. You're offering a relationship um, and you're offering to be wounded by them and mm. also for them to show, I mean, to show them your own flaws. Mm. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing about, you know, in our more say traditional churches is that it's really easy in some ways to be um, hospitable to people when you're really only engaged with them once or twice a week. Mm. But when you live with people and you know all of their habits, their idiosyncrasies, um, the way they talk to their kids at night, because you can hear it through the walls. <laughs> I'm saying that about myself. <laughs> Go to bed! <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, you know, it, it gets you to a deeper level, but it's also painful, because you can't hide. Mm. And 
that kind of vulnerability, that rawness is it's, it's painful to kind of pull up from yourself and allow other people to see. Mm. Yeah. There's no, there's no place to hide if you're always on, you know, you're always on view and in, in a community that's that close. That's, that's yeah. true. But one of the mm-hmm. things that I really appreciated too, is you were talking about how self righteousness can happen when we, when we take on, hospitality in a certain way um and you're you were talking about um you say if we approach hospitality only only as the hosts as the Mm -hmm. helpers and heroes then we're in a position of power we risk turning hospitality into something less like a relationship and more like charity and Mm -hmm. maybe you can speak to that a little bit because you're talking about reciprocal things and not like here's here I'm the host and and you're my guests and that's really different really than what you're saying it could be yeah well I mean I look at my neighbors that I mentioned in the book Matt and Angela who um who fostered two children and eventually adopted them Mm. and I think when you ask or when you talk to somebody who has fostered or adopted and you say to them you guys are so great and, um, you know, your kids are so lucky, then being in relationship with Matt and Angela, they're like, we're lucky. <laughs> These are our kids, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's, it, we're changed by our kids, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're in relationship with our kids and yeah, we're lucky to have them, but they are, I mean, they're lucky to have us, but we're also lucky to have them. And so I think that's a metaphor for me, um, about, being in relationship with people, um, that, that you're changed by them. And our whole community was changed and, and grew because of them fostering and adopting these kids. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't, mm-hmm. they weren't doing it out of charity. They were doing it cause they wanted to have a family. And I think that's what family does. You know, we open ourselves up to each other and that's always dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think of the mission field and of course that might be a loaded thing to talk about, but, um, Howard Thurman, who I mentioned just a little bit at the beginning of the book, he was an African American prophet, um, mystic poet. Um, he wrote a book called Jesus and the disinherited. And he talks a little bit about that, about, um, how he would see people on the mission field go and kind of the white savior Mm -hmm. and then not be open to, learning about the culture. And so I think, I think that hospitality is involved in all of that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, and it's, you know, setting up a hierarchy, if you're going to a place and saying, we have an answer for you and your problems. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I have all my answers solved, of course. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have any problems, but you guys guys you have a lot of problems you know and uh, like thinking we don't have anything to learn um is a is a really you know there's there's so many levels of wrong (laughs) besides you know cultural morally and and every other way if we're going to think we're blinded to even our everyday neighbors let alone a mission field or anything like that like everybody could could teach us a bunch of things and we're not really realizing that i think Mm mm-hmm because it takes a lot of humility and it takes mm. a lot, you know, recognizing your own, your own weakness mm-hmm. uh, and being willing to have that pointed out to you, you know, yeah. that's what a deep relationship does. And that's the relationships that we should 
be willing to have with each other. Well, what would you say to somebody who was considering starting up some sort of intentional community? Would you, it was, would it be somebody, <laughs> something that you would ever do again? <laughs> oh, I mean, maybe hard. not farming. I don't know. <laughs> no. Maybe not doing a farm. Let's say don't do crops, you know, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no crops. But, um, or just some way that church, like yeah, instead of, yeah. instead of going to a church, and here's, here's one of the reasons I ask. Uh, I saw something, I, I read something, social media or whatever, and, and it was saying like, you know, if you're going to have to drive 45 minutes to get to your church in the suburbs or across town or something, you're, what are you going to be doing for the people around you? Because that, all that driving time also takes yeah. away from where you could be in your neighborhood somehow and just do you know your neighbors? Yeah. And, and can you really know people that you only see the one or two times a week because you live so far away from each other. Yeah. And it's a real issue that a lot of people come up against who are, who are Christians or people of faith where they might travel for the, the church that has the most awesome stuff or just has uh, uh, someone they really love who goes there who are a great activities preacher. Yeah, activities yeah. or maybe just a, a wonderful leader or uh, friends of theirs go there and they don't want to stop going even though their neighborhood could probably use them and yeah. what are what are ways that could be more intentional if if um like i don't know there's got to be better ways to do it and i and your book kind of sparked that within me of um you know maybe i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be a farmer i'm <laughs> really sure about that, but I know that there are, other <laughs> but I know there are other ways to do it better, to do community better somehow. Yeah. Well, and I think this is a, a question that my husband and I have talked about a lot. I mean, that's why I kind of laugh because hmm. in a lot of our conversations, because, you know, we've moved and he is a pastor now mm -hmm. at a church. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we're in a more traditional church now mm -hmm. and, that was, it was a hard transition. It's a, it's a small church and it's actually of traditional churches. It's, it's a church that feels more open. It's a very hospitable church, but it necessarily has those same dynamics that you're talking about. You know, that some people drive 20 minutes, some people, I mean, they're scattered, people are scattered all, all across the county. Mm -hmm. So it's not feasible to be, um, in each other's lives as much as, you know, in our community when people cared for the elderly mm -hmm. and nurse the sick. Um, now people's families do that for them, right? Instead of mm -hmm. people in their church. I mean, that's not always true, but there, but that generally is true. Um, so we have been talking about this question, like how do we live into what I call a mystical faith? Like how mm -hmm. do we continue a lot of the things that that transformed us in intentional community into, you know, we're living in a small town in Ohio, mm -hmm. and how do we how do we uh, show hospitality and allow hospitality to be shown to us to our local neighbors and to the people in our church? I mean, that's still a question that we're wrestling with a lot, and we're mm. I mean, we're we're trying to do a lot of praying about that and. Um, trying to listen mm -hmm. to see how that can be done because it was, it was easier in a lot of ways to be intentional when you're in a community that when everybody else is also being intentional. So you're sort of, um, you know, going, 
going against the grain. Um, this is not a, a lifestyle that most people are used to. So, mm, yeah. 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 Because you have a shared vision if you're on a, a same piece of property or something, but not necessarily everybody at your church is going to think this is a great idea to, to do things in certain ways. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as a pastor, obviously my husband can offer some sort of vision for something, but that's not, you know, not everybody has that capability or desire. So I don't know. <laughs> We're trying to figure it out. I hate to say, I don't know, but I, yeah, it's, it's hard. When we first moved here, um, I was reading this book called Living Sustainably, and I was doing a book review for Christian Century. And it was all about this woman who had visited 15 or 20 intentional communities. And she was talking in glowing terms about the things that she's, she had learned from these communities and how she could implement those in her own life. And it was sort of painful because mm. all of these things that meant so much to, to us, we knew we were leaving behind uh, that, that form of it. Yeah. <laughs> but how, how could we draw that with us? So one of the things that we have done is we have tried to keep relationships with people who are still in intentional community um, and bounce things off of them and, you know, try to have dialogue with them and sort of remind ourselves what are the things that we, we can do now um, to keep up that mystical faith. Hmm. One of my favorite things is, is your, your last line in the book, and it's maybe the key to nurturing a mystical faith is in the longing itself. Hmm. And um, maybe you could talk about what you meant when you said that in a little more um, in, in a deeper way or, I mean, that I, when I read that, I read that for myself and I was like, mm. Ooh, that I mean, that was going to take that with me as a nugget, you know? Um, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because, um, you know, that that's the thing about faith and for sure mystical faith is that you never arrive at any place, you know, you don't yeah. get there. You, and that's the whole point. You're, you're still, you're still, everything's kind of, um, I mean, you're not supposed to, faith isn't supposed to be something where you, you land somewhere and everything's just finished off. No. <laughs> it's never done. You know, so your, you know, your, your faith is perfected, you know. So um, as you wrote that, I would love to know is either what was going on in, in your mind or, or kind of what that means to you now. Yeah, I think, I mean, that, that epilogue, I actually, I had written part of it, but I rewrote it once we moved to Ohio Hmm. and I was reading that living sustainably book and I was mourning, you know, we were grieving Hmm. and grieving, as I said before, the loss of that um, mystical faith in that form, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it was sort of a nugget of of hope to myself, like maybe I have to keep longing. And I think in the longing, you know, I, I see it as a stance of kind of leaning forward. You know, you're on your toes. And I think it was interesting you said um, perfecting our faith. It, it kind of reminds me of a quote from Teresa Avila, Teresa of Avila, and she she was a mystic. And she talks about how um, her point in this quote is that like ecstasies and visions and what she calls interior delights are 
not the highest perfection when it comes to being a mystic. What the highest perfection is, is making our, um, our will so in line with God's will that you can't tell where our, where your own will is, that, that your desires are God's desires. So I think of that as sort of the goal, if there, if that's a good word for it in a mystical faith is always longing to be in that stream, mm. God's, God's life-giving stream and be flowing, you know, with God's desires and wills, um, what God wills. So I guess that's sort of what that means to me, um, the leaning forward and always just, um, with open hands, mm. God, um, saying, take me, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know where to go. I want to be this. I want to be transformed. I want to be in your presence and, and awareness of you. So, you know, I'm here and that's, you know, contemplative. I'm here. So. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's another thing that, that contemplative prayer is, um, focused on, well, some people would say union with God, which is to say that, you know, Christ-likeness, that you can't tell, you know, you're so maybe overflowing with love and Christ-likeness that that it's obvious, you know, that like the saints you mentioned in, in the book, some of them anyway, is that yeah. they, their lives are obviously tributes to that and people would know it you know you would an encounter right. with them right. would be like oh my we know wow centuries later we know <laughs> yeah like there was it was remarkable and people could tell and they follow right. their writings you know to right. this day and maybe the byproduct of contemplative prayers is what happens after a life of that or many many years of that and maybe not the same thing you get when you're praying for in the same sorts of ways that we might have been taught to pray about even just intercessory prayer or other, other forms, which are all fine, which are not right. a problem. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but, not at all. Yeah, but th these, this kind of prayer is just um, being willing to be um, changed into Christ-likeness and being filled with love and being, you know, like you're saying, not knowing whose will it is, whether it's God or your own, because it's yeah. so close. That's a beautiful way to try to understand what's happening in the mm -hmm. in the mystical life, the mystical faith. Yeah, and I think these mystics, I mean, the, the ancient mystics, I mean, it, it's possible that some of them just randomly had a vision. I mean, that, that happened. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these visions and the transformation, you know, you can have the vision and not be transformed. Mm -hmm. But it came from these years of contemplative prayer and contemplative posture toward God. Mm -hmm. You know, it came from the longing, you know, that's like St. Francis's stigmata. I talk about like maybe the longing just came out of him in these wounds. You know, he wanted to be so much in participation with Jesus mm. that, that the longing just came out in, in the wounds. Mm. And I think that's such a good, you know, visceral metaphor for, that open-handed longing mm. toward God. That makes me want to ask you a question about how you are, um, in a sense, with your children and spiritual formation. Mm. You know, I'm sure they're, just because they lived in an intentional community, they were raised so much differently than you were. But um, in terms of their own faith or 
understanding the mystical faith or contemplative faith, how does that work in, in their own lives? Or is, is that something that, that intersects with their lives and how you interact with them? I mean, we, <laughs> I don't want to paint myself a, a picture of somebody who contemplates all day because. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a person and everything. <laughs> what? Yeah. You're not in a cloister? No. <laughs> I'm good if I get it done once a week. Let's say that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what we have, I mean, and that's the irony is that the being in the, t- the community that we were in, and I don't think this is true. This is not true for every intentional community, but because ours was so unhealthy toward the end of our time there, mm-hmm. it sucked all of our, um, a lot of our energy. Mm. And I think we weren't as present with our kids mm-hmm. as we, as we should have been. So it actually took us moving here to be, to work more on being present with them and, um, helping them develop a spiritual life, which mm. which we we are doing now. I mean, practically, some of the things that we do with them is um, a couple nights a week we do a worship time where we just sing worship songs together or hymns or some mm-hmm. you know songs from our tradition. Um, we memorize scripture together, particularly the Psalms and the Sermon on the Mount. And then we also do something else. Um, there's a book called Imaginative Prayer. Mm. Um, I think it's Jared Boyd. I might get that name wrong. I think that's it. But it's 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 for kids. It's for parents to do with their kids, and it's sort of a um, gentle introduction to contemplative prayer. Mm-hmm. And they love it. I mean, they close their eyes, and we walk them through. You know, there's a script in the book. You walk them through a scenario, and you, it goes with the scripture, and you just talk about what they imagine. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of you know, giving them the, the physical practice of sitting and being quiet, um, which I think a lot of people don't do, whether they're parents or adults, they mm-hmm. don't do. I mean, par- parents or kids, they don't do. So that's what we're trying right now. Um, but our kids are still young. So I'll tell you in 10 years how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Did it work or not? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's that's good to know. Like, that's that's the thing that I wonder um, because it was so foreign to me in my growing up in my own formation, the idea, you know, I was introduced in adulthood in seminary to to just the contemplative stream at all. And mm-hmm. thinking about my own kids about um, how to how to just listen, how to be quiet in in terms of prayer and things like that is still, you know, kind of a foreign concept to me, but I know that it's there's all kinds of reasons why it's important in a culture that's just drenched with media and drenched with anxiety and everything else that you, you want to do that for a lot of health reasons as well as spiritual reasons and whole holistically, you know, for Shalom, (laughs) um, that there's plenty of reasons to do that. So I was wondering how integrated it was into your family life. And I, it sounds like you'll have plenty of, opportunities to to bring that in in different sorts of ways we also have um we've started doing sabbath together Mm. um just kind of loosely Mm -hmm. um my husband has monday off Mm -hmm. since he doesn't have sunday off since (laughs) that's his main work day so we've tried to sort of um especially during the summer talk about how this is our sabbath day and we're resting from our work 
you know, um, and particularly my husband is resting from his work and we, we try to spend the day together as a family. And so I think we're trying to bring some of those rituals into our family life and, um, and kind mm-hmm. of model some of those things for our kids. Cause it really, I think it's really about the modeling and obviously those of us who didn't grow up with contemplative prayer or anything like that discovered it later on. And, um, who knows when our, if, if we instill that in our kids now, I don't know if they're going to reject that when they're older. Right. It'll be interesting to see what they um, keep with them. But I think the memorizing scripture is was important to me. I memorized Psalms when I was young. And having that to, um, to, to go to as, mm. as an adult. And Psalms I find very, you know, they're so full of both lament and joy and grief. Um, but just having those to access, I think will stay with our kids for mm. their whole lives. So I think that right there will stay with them, mm. whatever they choose to do with it. Yeah. And they can be, they can be prayers too, forms of prayer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you can tell people where they can find you and what are some of the best places to find you? And, uh, if there's anything else you want to say, parting words of wisdom or anything else, this would be the time <laughs> to do it. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have any words of wisdom except, you know, live a, live a mystical faith, be a misfit if you can. Um, I have a website. Uh, I blog, uh, not too regularly, but I, I do blog some. It's Christiana in Peterson.com. I don't know if you want me to spell that or not, or if you'll have a place that that is spelled. Right. It'll be on, it'll be in the show notes too. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I was just going to say that I blog fairly regularly at Good Letters, which is an image journal blog. So sometimes my work is up there, too. This has been really a delight. Thank you so much for being my guest. Oh, loved it. Thank you. If you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.